So far in the retreat, we've spoken about metta, spoken about compassion. And this evening, I'd like to touch on the third of what are called the Brahma-Viharas, or divine abidings, the quality of joy, mudita. This is often translated as uh, an appreciative joy. But I would like to look at this quality in a wider context, the very nature of joy itself. When the Buddha spoke about all of these qualities, again, he spoke about them as the qualities which ennoble and liberate the heart. And joy is often spoken of much less than metta or compassion or equanimity. And yet all of these qualities are, of course, as we've already mentioned, very much interwoven. There's a quote that says, Kindness gives to equanimity its boundless nature. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference. Equanimity gives selflessness to love, gives patience, courage, and fearlessness to compassion. Equanimity guards joy from sentimentality. It brings all of the noble qualities of the heart together in freedom. I think joy is very deeply important in this path as we are really moment to moment asked to find the courage to turn towards the many layers of pain and suffering and fear that truly exist in the world and in ourselves to be able to turn towards those layers without feeling broken. To meet, to meet this world as it is with so much of the sorrow, the pain, the alienation, the despair it can hold. To meet that meeting without mindfulness, without compassion, without joy and equanimity can actually really feel overwhelming. And I I think sometimes this is, you know, a question people bring into retreats and into this teaching, you know, at times you can feel like you get a dukkha overdose. Um, And you, you can feel the effect of that, you know, when it's not balanced, when that meeting is not balanced with these other qualities, it becomes a kind, can become a kind of heaviness, And then this quality of joy is essential as we turn with mindfulness towards ourselves, our own body, minds, hearts. Because, you know, it's it's not always, I mean, as you know, it's not always an easy road. There can be so much we discover or come in contact with that feels somewhat broken or imperfect. It often feels like there's just so much to do or that the path can feel so long. And without joy, there's easily a tendency to to become rather contracted and even actually identified 
with the difficult or the broken. Without joy, I think that meeting can even turn into a sense of magnifying, of a, a kind of sense of, of self and other and the gap between them. Gladness of heart, learning to bring spaciousness, quality of ease. Like all of the other Brahmaviharas, joy is not described as a state achieved separate and apart from other states. But joy or this gladness of heart, this, this sense of deep inner ease and spaciousness, is spoken about as a way of being present with sadness, with sorrow, with loss, in the midst of the difficult. We cultivate the heart's capacity for joy the heart's capacity for gladness. In the Dhammapada, the the Buddha instructed, live in joy, live in kindness even amongst those who hate. Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. Now, joy in this teaching is actually spoken about in many, many different ways. There is sensual joy. There's rapture. There's the joy of celebration, of appreciation. There's altruistic joy, generosity, the joy of contentment. The joy of gratitude and gladness, the joy of an awakened heart. Our minds, our hearts have the capacity and the potential to experience so much torment, struggle, alienation, confusion as we know, but it is exactly the same mind and heart that has the capacity to know very profound levels of joy and ease and gladness. It's not a different mind. It's not a different heart. It is acknowledging that our mind and our heart is always living in a state of potentiality, of possibility. Now, this path, of course, is really just simply an invitation for us to find the willingness to stop, to pause as we're doing here, to look carefully at our own hearts and minds and our moment-to-moment experience and understand what is really going on. This has always been the invitation of this path to look at our own capacity for contractedness and struggle and to see and to nurture our capacity for gladness and for joy. And certainly as the Buddha has talked about these qualities of joy, gladness, kindness, compassion, they are never kind of presented as being accidents you know, or something a fortunate few possess 
and the rest are excluded. They're not presented as being experiences, but as ways of being with all events and experience. A discovery of an inner well-being and a spaciousness of heart that actually pervades all experience, all events, even the difficult. Now, the path of joy is as much, of course, an insight practice as any of the other Brahma-Viharas. Because in the cultivation of joy, of course, we are also asked to look at what it is that smothers and suffocates our capacity for joy. And to see for ourselves that we may not actually be the contracted, anxious person that we think we are. Ruby even said, Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look, and instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it was always a fist or always a stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as birds' wings. Now, joy really does have a very direct relationship with metta. So much of it is rooted in our capacity to see and respond to the capacity for goodness in ourselves and others, no matter how deluded or confused that may seem to be. Our capacity to honor in ourselves and others our shared longing for safety, for peace, for acceptance, for happiness, no matter how confused or deluded the ways are that that longing may be manifested. On the most essential level, joy begins actually with the meta of integrity, of ethics, the foundation upon which actually the whole of the path rests. When we learn to free our hearts from the grip of aversion, which actually we must see is the source of all unethical act and speech and harm, is rooted in aversion. When we can plant the seeds of joy and free our hearts, we begin to free our hearts actually from the waves of blame and judgment and hatred and condemnation, then we start to understand what the Buddha actually meant by ethics. Because sometimes when he talked about integrity, he talked about thoughts and words and acts of metta. And this is the heart that becomes freed from residues. You know, this is much of what ethics is about freeing the heart from the residues of shame, of regret, of, of judgment, all of that lingers in the wake of what is not always meta. 
I think in ethics, in the cultivation of an ethical heart, a heart of matter, we actually begin to experience the first taste of joy. Actually, the Buddha didn't describe it as a taste. He talked about the bliss of blamelessness, which is quite big, actually. <laughs> the bliss of blamelessness. But he was really talking about the joy of the freedom, inner ground of freedom, of no residues. And it's on this ground, actually, of ethics that we do begin to open rather than contract. To be able to be more still inwardly, more at ease with ourselves and with the world rather than obsessive and agitated. It is a training in liberating the heart. It's not an accident. You know, the Buddha once when he's speaking about this in the Dhammapada, he said, it is a disciplined heart that invites true joy. Because it's a disciplined heart that really heals the underlying causes of suffering, of greed and hatred, of delusion. So I want to talk about some of these dimensions of joy. Uh, First is in ethics. And then there is sensual joy, sensual joy. The joy of a beautiful painting, listening to a beautiful piece of music. The joy of looking outside and seeing the sun setting and the stillness and the space around the trees. The joy of seeing the squirrels, you know, running across the grass. The simple joy of of seeing the the clouds moving through the sky. I mean, the world would be a very poor place without sensual joy. And, you know, I think there's often a kind of mistranslation in this path and that people often feel, you know, that somehow they need to be really careful here, you know, because... If they have too much appreciation, it's bound to turn into craving, you know. And, <laughs> you know, this kind of, uh, kind of glorification of over-earnestness, you know. And, you know, don't look, don't listen, you know, don't be touched, you know. This is, this is a kind of virtuous meditation. But sensual joy is part of our lives, just as the difficulties. And there is something, as we all know, when we are able to have that sensitivity of listening wholeheartedly, seeing wholeheartedly, being in the presence of the lovely, the delightful, our hearts are gladdened. You know, there is a smile that comes to us. And it it is a little taste of of that possibility of joy, that possibility of a gladdened heart. And actually, I always have felt it's very, very important in practice to be able to use that, that, so, that vast potentiality for joy that is all around us every moment of the day to actually begin to taste that sense of spaciousness and gladness and ease and appreciation. Being able to receive the lovely being able to receive the lovely, and it really isn't ever very far away from us. 
The next dimension that is joy that is spoken about is rapture. It is in Pali, it's referred to as piti, not pity, piti. And this kind of joy is a very, uh, and the very energetic, very blissful states, often associated with deep states of concentration and absorption. Um, some of you may know this, but when concentration practice is developed um, very deeply, very profoundly, what really are some of the fruitions of that development are these very refined qualities of consciousness such as rapture, um, happiness, very profound levels of inner peace, qualities that are quite enduring and quite actually um, very profound states. Now, the Buddha, of course, cautioned against pursuing this kind of rapture or joy uh, as an end in itself because concentration states and their associated qualities, of course, will arise and pass as all states do. They are, they are conditioned. But not pursuing them as ends in themselves does actually does not deny the worthiness of them because certainly what I have found in in doing deeper concentration practice and seeing in others, is that sometimes these qualities that emerge, such as rapture or joy, they they give a glimpse, an unshakable glimpse of the vast potentiality of our consciousness. they give a glimpse, and often a deeply unshakable glimpse, of an inwardly generated joy. And that's something quite significant. Because that inwardly generated joy is not born of getting something, it's not born of pushing things away, but it is a joy discovered through developing a very deeply collected heart and mind that is freed from fragmentation and distractedness, a heart and mind that's freed from obsession and the hindrances. And what emerges in that is a mind, a heart that's deeply at ease, deeply happy, deeply delighted, a true friend. And of course, that quality of consciousness is really a possibility for all of us. But this inwardly generated joy has much to offer us in terms of insight. Because when you really touch that inwardly generated joy, um, it's also a taste of an inner sufficiency. And we know, we really come to know, that we can search the whole world for things to make us happy. And how often we go through life saying, you know, make me happy. Isn't it the death knell for every relationship when you look someone in the eye and say, make me happy? (laughs) And yet this is kind of our conditioning, isn't it? That it doesn't lie within, it's something to gain, something to be given happiness, something to be a a kind of reward. And when we actually really discover that inwardly generated happiness, 
We know that there's absolutely nothing in the world that can be gained that can compare to that quality of refined inner joy inwardly generated. And the insight part of that, of course, is that it very profoundly shifts our relationship to life and to the world. It really lessens that whole surge of craving and identification, that sense of, you know, the hungry ghost saying, feed me. Because actually we know, as the Buddha actually said, that the source of true joy really lies within our own hearts and not within the things of the world. There is another quality of joy, I think, that is born of a very heartfelt appreciation of ourselves and our other and others. The the joy of gratitude. Martin Luther King Jr. even said that whether we realize it or not, each of us lives eternally in the red. We are everlasting debtors to the known and the unknown women and men in the world. When we arise in the morning and go into the bathroom and reach for a sponge which is provided for us by a Pacific Islander, we reach for soap that is created for us by a European. Then at the table we drink coffee provided for us by a South American or tea by a Chinese or cocoa by a West African. Before we leave the house, we've already beholden to more than half of the world. It's true, isn't it? It is helpful, I think, for us to pause again and again in our day and to know that this very life we live, of course, is a gift of many. It is, of course, possible to go through our days preoccupied with all that we don't have and never have received. And joy certainly is not a denial of the very deep pain of feeling not enough, not enough love or not enough support or not enough acceptance. These may be realities in our lives. And yet here we are in the only life we can live and really choosing moment to moment where we will make our home in resentment, in envy, in blame, in ideologies of insufficiency, or in our capacity for generosity and appreciation. And, you know, we talk about these qualities as being very boundless, very immeasurable qualities. But, of course, we do begin, all of us, with a bounded generosity, with a bounded metta, with a a bounded compassion. But we are just step by step and breath by breath really inching our way towards the boundless and the immeasurable. But it is a practice and it is a cultivation and it takes such patience and it takes such perseverance. To read you something by Mary Oliver, if I can find it. It's a poem called The Visitor. And it really describes this inching towards possibility. 
My father, for example, who was young once and blue-eyed, returns on the darkest of nights to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lips swollen with bitterness. And so for a long time I did not answer, but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open and I knew I was saved and could bear him. Pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him and the meanness gone. And I greeted him and asked him into the house and lit the lamp and looked into his blank eyes in which at last I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. I think generosity and appreciation, we learn not only to offer outwardly, but to offer inwardly to ourselves. What you all do here is actually really quite heroic. You know, the efforts you make, the sincerity you bring, the path you walk, it actually really is not easy at all. And there are so many other things we could be doing with this mind and this life and this moment. And in truth, as we know and as we've talked about, we are always practicing something. And yet here we are doing really all that we can and planting the seeds of inner freedom. I think it's a pretty well-known fact that the human mind inclines primarily towards perceiving what is wrong, what is imperfect, what is lacking. We see so often the whispers of craving and aversion running through our day, and we see that they are tendencies indeed that do contract us, they do close the heart. So cultivating appreciation, cultivating gratitude, cultivating generosity really rests upon our capacity to open our hearts and minds, to be able to receive and to be able to give. I have a student who, who on a long retreat a few years ago quite suddenly suffered a, a catastrophic kidney failure. It really devastated her, her body and her life. And I ran into her at the gym a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and she told me that her brother had offered her one of his kidneys. And I saw the joy in her eyes. And, you know, as she, when she told me this, I just, the tears came to my eyes. I felt such a surge of joy at this remarkable generosity. And <laughs> the funny thing is she said to me, and you know, my brother doesn't even have a spiritual path. I thought, mm. 
Now, we may not and may never be the recipient or, or be in need of such a gift, yet on a daily basis our very life rests upon the kindness and generosities of others. You know, even from an evolutionary perspective, it never was the survival of the fittest. It always was the survival of the kindest, of those who could find community, of those who had bonds. We move into the language of us and not I. The teaching speaks of altruistic joy, our capacity to celebrate the happiness and well-being of others. And this is not about being happy for somebody because they win the lottery or, you know, they get a new car or something. You know, that's very much to kind of trivialize joy. Altruistic joy is much more a kind a quality of selfless joy. The freedom from envy, the freedom from jealousy, the freedom from feeling lesser than someone. Um, it is what arises actually when envy and resi- resentment and covetousness do not appear. I want to read you some phrases if I can find them. Okay, now this is a translation from a Sri Lankan text about the Brahma Viharas. How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. When I first thought that heard those phrases, I thought, bit saccharine. (laughs) But these are not, they might sound a bit sentimental, you know, something you might feel when you when you fall in love or, you know, come across a cute puppy or, you know, a newborn baby or something. But of course, altruistic joy is not about sentimentality. It's about selflessness. When, when we are really present, and when we are really present in the presence of the wholesome and the skillful in the liberating, when we are really present in metta, in generosity, in empathy, in gratitude, we actually really see how the voice of selfing does become so quiet. And in that quietude, as I mentioned the other night, the gap between self and other softens is more transparent and we really do begin to see ourselves in the eyes of another. We see the wholesome and the completeness of another rather than seizing upon a particular or a fragment. When the less skillful, the less wholesome is present in terms of aversion and fear and blame, we see not only how the volume of self gets turned up, but we see the tendency to seize upon the fragment, a sliver, a particular of another or of ourselves, and to say that is the whole of who they are, or that is the whole of who I am. 
Now, of course, times uh, that other, of course, the, the fragments that are seized upon are within ourselves. We take hold of a mental state. We take hold of an emotion, a resentment, a jealousy, a sense of failure, a regret, and we say, this is who I am. But it is a taking hold only of a particular, and you know what? The windows to joy are slammed shut in that seizing upon a fragment, mistaking it for the whole. When we learn to open and to see with more fullness, to not be so identified with the fragments, it is like opening the windows to the possibility of joy. And I think we sense this in our day. The more I and you that that is present, the less joy there is. The degree of calming, the degree of opening, the degree of metta, again, is the greater the joy in that moment. There is the joy that is discovered through learning really what it means to be wholeheartedly present in our life. And you know what? To celebrate the fruits of our practice. Actually, mindfulness is deeply a deeply joyful way to be in this world. Because it is to be alive to the aliveness of all things. When our eyes are closed, when there is forgetfulness, when there is contractedness, the truth is we actually are not able to receive what is around us. Mindfulness is is there to illuminate the world, to bring the world to life, to allow us to see the nuances, the subtleties within and the aliveness within all things. It is actually really pretty joyful. That's why we do it. <laughs> you know, after being in this practice for a, a very long time now, um, it makes me sound ancient, um, but it uh, 40-some years, I'm not doing this because I like misery. <laughs> I think Mary Oliver actually carries this very beautifully in her poem, which is surprisingly called Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy. An acclamation. No, nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? The untrimmable light of the world, the ocean sign, shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. It is almost, I think it is almost an eternal law that as understanding deepens, so too will gladness 
and happiness and stillness deepen. That as our understanding deepens, so too our capacity to be at peace with all things, to be touched and delighted, deepens. As understanding deepens, we begin to see suffering and the causes of suffering begin to fall away. We find ourselves less impatient, less clinging, less judgmental, less lonely, less despairing. It is not always a linear process, but it is a path. And we discover over and over again the small tastes of joy and the small tastes of freedom that liberate the heart from greed and hatred and delusion. And there is actually a great joy in this. We have all, I think, in our lives, tasted moments of joy. Sometimes they're just very fleeting. Sometimes they're deeper, a lasting gladness. But if we are to cultivate joy as an inclination of the heart, as an inclination of the heart, just as we cultivate metta and compassion as inclinations of the heart. Then perhaps we need to ask ourselves what it is that stifles joy, what it is that leeches joy and freedom and happiness for our lives. The very first thing, I think, is that sometimes we are just too full. We're just too full to be touched by the quiet whispers of joy, that they're drowned out by the volume of preoccupations and habits and busyness. It's so interesting in Chinese calligraphy, I believe, that the symbol for busyness translates as heart-killing. Now, busyness is not actually about how many responsibilities we have in this life because we all have responsibilities. It it is more about busyness as a state of mind. It's like, you know, have you seen on retreat, even on retreat you can get busy? I mean, we've got nothing to do here, and we can can be busy doing nothing. And you really, don't you ever feel it as a state of mind? That state of hurry, that state of, you know, just needing to do something. It's like, you know, if we took this bell and we stuffed it full of things, of earth, or even of blankets, you know what? The bell doesn't ring anymore. It doesn't ring. And that is a little bit like how our hearts can be. I recently read a a study of someone who'd done this study of, of, you know, the top 10 deathbed regrets. (laughs) Very cheery study. um, I bet we could all just put them out right now before we're even there. You know, I wish I'd worked less. I wish I'd lived more. I wish I'd loved well. I wish I'd given myself to others. I wish I'd allowed myself to smile more. Thomas Martin once said, 
to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to the violence of our times. It is a great challenge of a lay life, isn't it? Where the possibilities of doing are endless, where there are so many voices calling upon us to do more when our hearts are actually telling us to stop more and to do less. The pressure to become someone, something, to accomplish, to perform, is not only an external pressure, it is also an inwardly generated pressure. because it becomes a measure of our worthiness. We need to be so mindful of the effect of our hearts and minds. Joy actually requires and rests upon our capacity for stillness inwardly. doesn't mean we give up the world, but we're so mindful of our mental states. We're so mindful of the price we might pay sometimes when we sacrifice stillness in order to become. We learn to place, I think, stillness more centrally in our lives, our capacity to listen, to see, to touch, to cultivate the conditions from which joy and gladness arise. We do see that the shape of our life mostly reflects the shape of our mind. And that the shape of our mind gives rise to the shape of our life. And our life can be full of preoccupations and obsessions and plans and projects. We hear the ongoing hum of our, of our thoughts, what Stephen Levine once called the unfinished symphony, which is never going to be finished. What we are... Well, we do see in this teaching that none of this hum, none of this preoccupation, none of this fullness, over-fullness, is a life sentence. It is a fullness that we're learning to empty right here. This is what we do. We learn to empty some of that fullness, to simplify, to calm, to quiet. And it's really not an easy practice, is it? But it really is a practice of the moment of learning to listen to the story of our minds, our bodies, our hearts, to listen to the story that each moment brings to us. As Ajahn Chah once said, if you let go a little, little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you get complete peace. The wondrous thing, I think, about gladness, about joy, is that we don't have to wait for the difficult, the agitations, the worries to be over, to find an ease of heart, to find an inner gladness. We don't have to wait for the sadness and the sorrow and the fear to go away or for the thoughts to stop. Joy, like all the Brahmaviharas, is a relational quality. In the midst of sadness, in the midst of agitation, in the midst of a mind that feels just too busy, what does it mean to pause, to stop, to step out, to look at the sky, 
to look at the space surrounding the silhouettes of the trees, to listen to the song of the bird arising and passing, to feel our body breathe, our foot touch the ground, to see the flow of all events arising and passing, the nature of all things, and to know that this sadness, this sorrow, this despair, this agitation too, will arise and pass, and it is part of a whole. It is not the whole. To know that we were never actually in charge, we were never the conductor of the orchestra, You know, we're learning that quality of receptivity to illuminate and to awaken the world and to see that sadness can be, sorrow can be, thoughts can be, emotions can be. And we have the capacity to meet them with spaciousness and befriending. When we look carefully at our own minds and hearts, we see that it is not life that stifles joy. Instead, it is probably, I think, two primary tendencies that suffer joy, suffocate joy. One is obsession and the other is craving. And both have this very common thread of agitation. With obsession, we turn inwardly and we become prisoner, a prisoner of emotionally driven thoughts. We contract and the world becomes smaller and smaller and agitation dominates, rules our consciousness. With craving, we turn outwardly and forward, always seeking actually with craving a substitute for joy. It's not appreciating sensual pleasure, it's insisting upon it. We want, we can live in a state of wanting, and that is to live in a state of discontent. There's a better place to be, a better moment to be in better body to have. Guess what we're taking there? This same mind. (laughs) This same heart. If contentment is not here, do we really feel we will find it elsewhere? If gladness is not here, do we really imagine it lies in some other place? If joy is not here, do we imagine it awaits us in some other dimension? There is no gladness in craving, excitement, intensity. These are all the poor cousins of joy. If the work of metta is to uproot aversion, if the work of compassion is to find the courage that allows us to meet sorrow and pain without fear but with empathy and respect, then the insight aspect of joy is really to look where its source actually lies and to begin to calm the agitation of craving, to be able to stop amidst the surges of craving and to be able to ask ourselves and again and again, what in this moment is lacking? What in this moment is lacking? Craving is born of discontent and leads to further discontent. Craving is agitation, leads to further agitation. It's an unarguable law. Uprooting craving, calming obsession is to calm insufficiency. It seems an impossible task to begin to step out of the current 
of all of the small and large obsessions and cravings that govern our day. But this is actually what we're practicing, to be able to stop, to be able to pause, to listen, and to ask ourselves, where is the stillness? Where is the calmness? Where is the joy in this moment? And gladness, I think, is often closer than we think. Rumi and said, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And craving and obsession have only one taste, and that's the taste of imprisonment. And the joy, too, only has one taste, and it is a taste of freedom, a taste cultivated within our practice, within this mind and body and heart, just however they are offering the possibility of ease, of gladness, of rest within those pauses that we cultivate moment to moment. I want to end with a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called So Much Happiness. It's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hand, like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. If just a moment, quietly together. Thank you for your attention. We have a walk. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.